All right, let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that you be with us again this evening as we continue our our discussion and our discovery, you might say, of the various time periods of Old Testament history and how they affected all of what we call sacred scripture today, particularly the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, give us, you know, the courage to open our minds and hearts and set aside any preconceived notions to hear what it is that you want us to hear. So we ask your blessing on our efforts this evening, and we give you praise and thanksgiving and all thanks in Jesus' name. If you think I gave you a lot of details last week, and it was a little too much, or it was more than you could uh, digest, or you didn't get it all, don't worry, because we'll cover a lot of those same details again as we go through. Last week was pretty much an overview of all of this course that, you know, will be going on for ten weeks. So don't be uh, alarmed if you feel that it was too much to absorb last week. Uh, I'm not going to give you a test. I'm not going to tell your mother if you don't get things right. So, you know, this is not school. This is something that you are here because you want to be. And I appreciate that. Okay. Uh, we are going to be studying primarily or discussing uh, the third and fourth periods of Old Testament history in accordance with the... Uh, chart that I gave you, or in the handout <clears throat> that I gave you last week. So for any of the people that are just joining us for the first time this week, this is what we will be looking at and talking about. Okay. Now we covered a lot of territory last week, but primarily the first two, beginning from the left, of course the first two of the time periods. And I want to review a couple things that were in there because they influence and are carried over into all of the time periods. One of them is the whole meaning of covenant. Please get this in your mind and heart because the covenant that God made with mankind beginning with Abraham, <clears throat> is really a very important aspect of our belief. Not just the people at that time, but our belief. The covenant that God made, which we call the first covenant, was with somewhat primitive people. It was pointed out to me tonight that Abraham uh, came on the scene, you might say, 2,000 years before Christ, which was in the early stages of the Iron Age. So if you can kind of uh, imagine that in connection with the culture and the mentality of those people, uh, the idea of covenant was something new and startling because it represented God dealing directly with mankind and giving mankind, he started with Abraham, but there was a much greater plan 
in mind. Abraham being an old man, his wife Sarah beyond childbearing age, they had prayed for a long, long time, essentially most of their married life, for a child, particularly a male child. All right. God promised in this context of the covenant that he would give them a male child. He also promised them that he would give them a specific area of land which they could call their own. And this is something fairly new. These were nomadic people who moved around from place to place wherever they could find green pastures for their sheep because their sheep and other cattle were their whole livelihood. And if the sheep and cattle died out for lack of pasture, the people themselves would die out. Okay. So it was very important that they understood the whole idea of land being something for them. In addition, land to them meant identity with surrounding or neighboring nations. So this was, again, a very important point. And then the last part of this covenant agreement was God's personal protection. You will be my people for a specific reason, and I will be your God. And that was another important item, because it was Abraham's belief in the one true God that began this whole process of God choosing Abraham and his wife to begin what was to be the Jewish nation. All right? From which most of our original or basic history comes from. Uh, And I mean religious history. So, again, keep in mind this idea of covenant. Now, the covenant that God made with Abraham was renewed Not changed, but renewed in its original form with all of Abraham's descendants, beginning with Isaac, his son, Jacob, his grandson, their, uh, Jacob's sons, the twelve tribes of Jacob, or the twelve tribes of Israel, same thing, alright, and all down through history to a point. To a point. We'll come to that later, perhaps tonight. Uh, but covenant was very important, so kind of keep that in mind. <clears throat> the other thing that I want you to kind of keep in mind is the idea of Scripture. In the early days when the Scriptures would began to be written down, and we'll talk about that a little later, but they were not written as Scripture. They were not written as sacred scripture like we think of them today. They were written as histories. The histories of their own people and the histories that uh, were handed down verbally up to around the 10th century, 10th or 11th century B.C. All right. And because they were histories, when later people would review these histories and incorporate them into what became larger and larger books. If they felt a given portion wasn't correct, 
they would change it. Nothing wrong with that. Or if they felt there was certain stories that were had a big gap in them, they would add whatever they thought should have been there or could have been there. Nothing wrong with that because, and you really have to believe this, because the Holy Spirit was behind them. Let's take, for example, you all know the stories of creation. Okay? Obviously, there were no camcorders or dictation machines, whether they worked or not, at the time of creation. We don't know exactly when creation took place, but most scientists of various natures, nature uh, tells us that the earth was created some four and a half billion years ago, right? All right, well, Abraham, in comparison, lived roughly 4,000 years ago. Big difference, right? big difference. So when these books started to be written down in around the 10th century, there was no one around who could go back. So what happened? The people who brought these books together and all of these histories together to create what we accept today as the Old Testament scriptures, and that all sort of indications point to the uh, priest Ezra, and we'll get into that a little later, uh, there was something missing. If the stories began with Abraham, what happened before that? So, it was either Ezra or somebody like him, a very devout person, wrote what was both legend, uh, tradition, custom, and speculation to create the stories that we call the creation stories, the first ten chapters of the book of Genesis. And I think he did a marvelous job because you can learn far more about God the Father in the book of Genesis than you can in all the rest of the Bible particularly relative to God's plan of salvation. All right? If you read between the lines of what the story is talking about, particularly when Adam and Eve disobey God and eat the fruit of the forbidden tree, uh, and then, of course, blame it on the serpent and so forth, this is, of course, where we get the little phrase, the devil made me do it, you know. Uh, the whole concept of God condemning the serpent but promising promising that there would be someone to come along a woman and her seed or her child would come along to correct that problem because we say that it was through this event of Adam and Eve sin, that sin entered the world. Prior to that, Adam and Eve lived with God, talked, ate, walked with God at their will because they were perfect and pure. But once sin entered the scene of because of their pride and their free will, then everything changed. And God had to banish them because, and you see, the 
Garden of Eden and all of that, the fact that Adam and Eve were naked up until they sinned and so forth, those are all symbolic uh, words and phrases and meanings. Because no one was there. So how did this come about? And I think, you, like I said, you'll find that in the book of Genesis, there is far more about God the Father and his plan of salvation than all the rest of the Bible. Uh, but let us go on. Uh, as I said, the whole point that I want you to get here is that the original or the first four or five books of the Bible, with the exception of Deuteronomy that we'll get into, the first four, were really written down more or less um, as histories or started as histories. And then eventually, when people saw how important they were to following this whole concept of God's plan and covenant, they eventually became appreciated to the level of sacred scripture. But it was hundreds of years before that took place. All right, enough of that. We'll go on later. The first time period from Abraham to Moses. Roughly 500 years. We are not certain of the time, uh, but most people will agree with that general reference and time span of 500 years from around the year 2000 to the, to the year 1500 BC. All right. Uh, the things that you really want to remember here is Abraham and God had a great and personal relationship in which God made a covenant with him because Abraham was one of the first that we know of that really followed the idea and the concept of the one true and God of all creation. Okay. The other important point was that there were no written rules, regulations, structure. There was no leadership, you might say, during this whole time period. Even though uh, eventually Jacob became the leader. Jacob was Abraham's grandson who had 12 sons, which we called it from which really developed the 12 tribes of Israel. And they became sort of the pillar of the covenant at that time, or the pillar of the church, as we would say today. There was no church. Um, and eventually they had to move down to Egypt because of a severe famine throughout Palestine. The other thing that I should say is that Abraham came from the land of Ur, which is roughly in the vicinity of Iran and Iraq today. And God asked them as part of the covenant to take up all of their possessions, family, uh, flocks, everything, and move to what we call Palestine or Israel. All right. A big, big uh, request. Uh, and Abraham must have had tremendous faith in God uh, because otherwise that uh, just 
wouldn't have happened. All right. Those are the main points of the first period. Okay. No rules, regulations, uh, or leadership or structure in this so-called Jewish nation. After the people had moved down to Egypt, they were first greeted in a very uh, friendly way and given very good farmland to live uh, because one of the twelve sons, Joseph, had befriended the Pharaoh and had worked and saved the Pharaoh uh, from um, a lot of embarrassment, etc. I won't go into all of the details. You'll find them in uh, the book of Genesis, the last part of it. Uh, but they were welcomed and they were treated very well. But as time went on, and they were in Egypt, this family of these 12 men, and all of their descendants got larger and larger and larger, of course. They were in Egypt somewhere uh, around three to 350 years. And, of course, in that time period, 72 people, roughly, um, I don't know where the, word, the number 72 came from, but that's traditionally what the number was. 72 people traveled down to Egypt, and over three or four hundred years, uh, they became quite a number of people. Okay, If you think about uh, the time from uh, Columbus discovering America to today, is just a wee bit over 500 years, and look at how many hundreds of millions of people that we have in the United States. Uh, obviously, the people did not increase and multiply at such a rapid rate because a lot of our uh, increase is due to immigration. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> but they were there for a number of years and became slaves. They became slaves because the pharaoh at the time, not the one that originally invited them down and took care of them and treated them well, but the pharaoh, Ramses II is the one traditionally uh, discussed, uh, became concerned that the Hebrew people, which they were called at that time, were becoming so numerous that they might take over Egypt altogether and turn on the Egyptians. So what he did was he made them slaves. And so now they are slaves and have been mistreated for some time. So they pray to God for deliverance. And God does deliver them through the hands of Moses. And you all know the story. I won't go into all of the details and the ten plagues, etc., but it's important to remember how they got there in the first place. And that's where, but it's important to kind of understand that. Anyway, Moses delivers them with the help of God. And it is shortly after their deliverance that they are given the Ten Commandments. Moses is called up onto the mountaintop and given the Ten Commandments. This is where the Jewish law begins. This is where the Jewish identity begins. In the desert with the Ten Commandments. And 
Again, a renewal of the covenant that God made originally with Abraham is now renewed with Moses. Same covenant, descendants, land, and protection. The land in this case was the promised land. Remember, promise ED on the end. Because it was land that God promised originally to Abraham. Okay, and now he's asking these same Hebrew people to return to that land. All with the idea of implementing uh, and furthering his plan of salvation. Which, of course, is what we are still struggling with. All right, and we'll get to that a little later also. So, this is where the second period is very important uh, because it is the beginning of Jewish traditions. And this is where their history really begins. It is still not written down yet, but this is where the history begins. The whole idea of the wandering in the desert because of the idolatry that was perpetrated by a few, uh, the punishment so that they wandered roughly for 40 years, rather. Uh, but eventually they got to the promised land. They settled there. Moses died. They settled under the direction and guidance of Joshua and Caleb. And then eventually because of the increase in uh, numbers of population, they developed a system of judges who would act as co-leaders, uh, you might say, after Joshua died, and so forth. So you have this whole idea of the resettlement of the promised land by the Hebrew people who are now being called Israelites because they are living in the land of Israel. And we are talking about Israel in the sense that Jacob's name was originally changed, or Jacob's name was changed sometime before this, before they went to Egypt in the first place, to Israel. And the idea of Israelite means the land of the person of Israel or Jacob. Okay, you got to kind of understand that, and the reason I'm sort of bringing that out is because as you read scripture and they talk about Israel and they'll talk about some of the sub uh, divisions of the promised land remember when or if you don't remember uh, as the 12 tribes and all of their families now that have multiplied over all of these years came across the Jordan into the promised land, uh, God directed that each of the tribes would go to a certain location and develop and settle there and not to leave or exceed the boundaries of that location. <clears throat> We've covered, you know, just briefly the first and the second periods. I want to get into the third period. The third period from the time of King David to the Babylonian exile. Well, how did we get from Moses to David? Well, after they settled in the promised land, uh, things went 
reasonably well for quite a while. But then they saw that all of the nations surrounding Israel had kings who would represent them and would fight their battles for them. And the Hebrew people or the Israelites didn't have a king or anyone to truly represent them. So that is when they first, they demanded a king. God was not pleased with this because God said, I am your king. The whole idea of the covenant is I will protect you and I will do this, thus, and so for you. They said, we still want an earthly king. God said, all right, you can have a king, but be aware that you are going to regret it. And they did. All right. They first elected Saul. Saul started out pretty good, but was a weak person and did not represent them well. Uh, each one of these tribes and these uh, sub-territories uh, sort of created their own kingdom within themselves. And they felt that they were autonomous and Saul was just a figurehead. So they didn't, uh, they did not really pledge allegiance to Saul. Although Saul reigned almost 40 years, it was not a peaceful time and it was not a creative time. <clears throat> it wasn't until he was deposed, so to speak, by God's help and authority and David was elected as king and David then united all of the tribes together under himself as king and all of the tribes pledged their allegiance to him and that was the uniting of the kingdom of Israel and the beginning of the golden age of Judaism. David did a lot of good things. Uh, he composed many prayers. Many of the Psalms are attributed to David, uh, either personally written or at least attributed to him in some way. Okay. Uh, David had a lot of good things, but he had a few things that God was not pleased with. Uh, most notably, of course, is a little affair with uh, Bathsheba. Uh, we won't go into that, but uh, that could take a me meeting all in itself. Yeah, if if this happened or if that happened, etc. Uh, anyways, from that union, not the first child, which who died, uh, but from that union, uh, Solomon was born. There were other sons because David had more than one wife, which was acceptable at that time. All right. But the golden age of Judaism was then passed from David to Solomon. We believe it was Solomon who encouraged the writing down of the Jewish history. Solomon did a number of things to glorify God and glorify Israel. Israel became a great city uh, or Jerusalem became a great city and well known uh, for its commerce and many other benefits and of course Solomon became uh, known for his great wisdom 
and so forth and so on. So you have a number of good things that came out of the third period. <laughs> when we talk about the um, J, E, D, and P theories, we're talking about groups of people beginning to write down the Jewish histories. Okay? There was, and of course you got to kind of look at this and sort of that's the Mason-Dixon line of Israel, okay? In the north there were two groups and in the south there were two groups. Not at the same time, though. In the south we had the J group. J standing for Yahweh in the Greek form. I'm sorry, not Greek form, in the German form. This was a German discovery and for some reason or other they always spelled well, as you know, many Germans people uh, substitute W and V and J and W. Okay, or they use them just the opposite of the way we do. Anyways, this was the first group around the 10th century. Okay. There was another group in the north. Called LOM. And that is the E group. There was another group in the north, and this is designated as D, and this is Deuteronomy. Alright? The E group was around the 9th century BC. Deuteronomy was around the 8th century BC. And then there was a fourth group of people in the south called the P group, or priestly group. And they were priests, and they were in the latter part, <coughs> excuse me, of the 6th century B.C., after the Babylonian captivity. There was a wide difference in here. These, all of these, with the exception of D, started out solely as histories of the Jewish people. D was a little different. And because of that difference, I want to spend a little time here explaining why. And then we'll come back to this D, E, J, and P theory uh, more next week. But I want to talk about something that was very important here. Because of the wealth of Solomon and his way of building up the commerce and businesses of all kinds and really creating a very wealthy nation. The people began to forget about God because they didn't think they needed him. But as things went on and Solomon died and one of his sons decided that he couldn't 
manage this whole country of Israel. And so he broke it into two parts. He stayed with the southern part as the leader of the southern part. And he gave the northern part to someone else. That someone else was only part Jewish and never really practiced, never had a relationship uh, with the one true God. And apostasy and idolatry started creeping in big time. That also happened in the southern kingdom, but not near as much. God's promise to Solomon or David and Solomon and their successors or their descendants uh, that he would always have a member of David's family on the throne of the southern kingdom was part of the covenant. Okay. Of course, it was for God's reason, not for Solomon. All right. But idolatry started reigning in Israel big time. Okay, from the latter part of the 10th century all the way down, and of course eventually led into the destruction of the northern kingdom or the conquering of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians in seven, <coughs> excuse me, 722 BC. And it continued uh, to a lesser degree, but nevertheless eventually uh, ended with the southern kingdom being conquered by the Babylonians in 587 BC. Okay. So both of them disappeared. God told them through the prophets. Now, this is the time period, the third time period, when the prophets came on the scene. We're talking about the literary prophets, all right? There were a few prophets before this time, but they left no writings. Elisha and Elijah. But the literary prophets that you find in your Bible were introduced to the Jewish people by God in the third time period to counteract the idolatry and the apostasy that developed in that same time period. Well, you might say, well, why didn't God come in and just wipe all of these people out? That's where free will comes in. If God did that, he would be taking away mankind's free will. But what does he do? He brings in the prophets, hopefully, to balance or counter the idolatry that was perpetrated by the leaders. You've heard the story about Jezebel. You know, wasn't there a, a song not too long ago called Jezebel? Not too long in my time, <clears throat> maybe yours. Um, and, of course, there was a movie many, many years ago with Betty Davis, who was called Jezebel. It wasn't the story of the biblical Jezebel, but she was a wicked woman in this movie, and that was the name of the movie for which she won an Academy Award. Anyways, those were part of the reasons of the idolatry, the apostasy, and the degradation of these people. So, you might say the third time period was the most productive in the ways of business and commerce and uh, physical wealth 
It was also productive because it was the same period when the writings of the Old Testament were finally put down on some form. Okay. But it was the most destructive time because, first of all, the split of the kingdom between the north and the south and the idolatry and the apostasy that developed. And the fact that both the north and the south ended up um, being conquered and taken as prisoners into a foreign country. The Assyrians, yeah. so, you know, when I say that the Assyrians took these northern people, and they didn't take everybody, they only took those that could do them some good. Tradespeople, shopkeepers, uh, women who could be uh, made servants, men who could have crafts, and so forth. And eventually, that's exactly what happened in the southern part, uh, when the Babylonians conquered and overran uh, Judah, or Israel. Um, actually, it was called Judah at that time. And took only those people, again, into slavery in Babylon, who could do them some good. And left the old, the crippled, you know, the sick, and so forth, there. Well, obviously... If they took all of the able-bodied men, there was none to run the farms. The shopkeepers were taken, so the shops were gone. They destroyed, uh, the Babylonians destroyed the city, so the commerce was gone. So, you know, eventually it went into ruin. The Babylonian captivity only lasted uh, roughly 50 years. So, so it wasn't quite as bad, and there was a remnant of uh, those people that eventually were returned to Israel with help to rebuild the walls and the temple. Cyrus the Great, the Persian king who overran the Babylonians, eventually released all of the Jewish people who wanted to go back to Israel. Many of them didn't want to go back and didn't, but he released voluntarily. So there again, God is really protecting his people and furthering his plan of salvation. But I want you to see in this third time period the importance of the prophets. Because they came on the scene in the beginning of, well, towards the end of the ninth century, beginning, well, sort of the beginning of the ninth century, rather, all right, and they faded out altogether in the fifth century. So, why would that happen? Well, what happened is in Babylon, the people finally got the message. Okay, I want to read to you. First of all, if if uh, if you go to Psalm 81, I'm not going to read all of it. In Psalm 81, beginning with the verse seven, God is telling the people how He started out by giving them everything 
that was needed. He was their king, they were his people, and he was their protector, and he was giving them everything that they fully needed. But they rejected him over and over and over. It says, I relieved your, I relieved his shoulder. His, in this case, is not a person, it is the country of Israel. I relieved his shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. In distress you called and I rescued you. Unseen I answered you in thunder. (laughs) Hear my people and I will admonish you. O Israel, will you not hear me? There shall be no strange God among you. Nor shall you worship any alien God. He's talking about the idolatry that has crept in and taken hold. I, the Lord, am your God, who led you forth from the land of Egypt. Open wide your mouth, and I will fill it. But my people did not hear my voice, and Israel obeyed me not. And so I gave them up to the hardness of their heart. They walked according to their own counsels. If only my people would hear me, and Israel would walk in my ways. Quickly would I humble their enemies, and against their foes I would turn my hand. And those who hate, hated the Lord would seek to flatter me, but their fate would endure forever. While Israel I would feed with the best of wheat, and the honey, and with honey from the rock I would feed. But it did not happen. It took Primarily, the prophet Jeremiah, I mean, uh, Ezekiel, to accompany the people to Israel, to teach them why they got there in the first place, because they didn't understand. They had lost sight of God, they've lost touch with God, and they didn't understand why they were there. But over a period of time, Ezekiel finally brought out the book of the Deuteronomy that had been written long before this and had been rejected by the people. But it was sort of brought to the southern kingdom and housed in the temple. But when the temple was destroyed, somehow it was rescued. The book of Deuteronomy was rescued. And Ezekiel used that to demonstrate to the people in Babylon, in exile, why they were there in the first place. So they finally got the message after all of this time. And the book of Deuteronomy then became the basis for their renewed vigor and their new renewed strength in worshiping the one true love, the one true God. And so God brings them back out of Babylon to Israel. Okay. And he brings them with the good graces of the king. So he's starting over again. It seems that the beginning of each of these four periods, God is there trying to give these people everything possible. He renews the covenant with them, makes all kinds of promises. 
But by end of the each of the five periods, it seems that the people turn against God in one way or another. All right. And you'll see that even greater uh, to some degree in the fourth period, which goes from the return of the exiles in Babylon in 539 B.C. to the time of Christ. Okay. During this time, and if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which is in your homework assignment or home reading assignment uh, for next week, you'll see a lot of reasons why. But once this small group of remnants came back from Babylon to Israel, it begins the fourth period now. And God again brings Jeremiah into the scene. And Ezekiel, the end of Ezekiel also, but mostly Jeremiah in this case, and a few other lesser known prophets. To encourage these people, he also brings Ezra and Nehemiah to help rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Now, by this time, Judaism has changed again. It was no longer the Levites who were administering a priest a priestly group developed in Babylon and the priestly group became the temple rulers in the fourth period of time. The study of the book of Deuteronomy was encouraged. Unfortunately, they took things into their own hand and the scriptures, particularly with Deuteronomy, became so important to them that they started to worship the scripture rather than worship the God who gave them the scripture. During this time period, and we're talking about now the fourth time period, some interesting things happen. They accept the book of Deuteronomy. They do originally sort of straighten up. They get rid of most of the um, idolatry and apostasy. They pledge their allegiance back to God. They use uh, Deuteronomy as their sort of blueprint. But they realize now, because in this time period, <coughs> they are under the domination of the Greeks. Remember, uh, Alexander the Greek conquered Israel and all of the Mideast territories uh, by the year 331 B.C. All right. So now they are under the Greeks. This is before the Romans come in in 63 B.C. And when Alexander dies suddenly at a very early age, his lieutenants or his generals in his various armies split up his kingdom into a number of lesser Kingdoms, you might say. Uh, those in the Mideast became the Seleucid kings. Those in North Africa became the Ptolemies. Right? You have a number of problems with Greek culture being forced upon the people of this whole region, whether they were Greeks or not. 
the Greek influence, which was called Hellenization. You know, somewhat after Helen of Troy, but not entirely. Uh, Hellenization was the term used for the forcing of the Greek influence on all of these people. This began a struggle again of the Jewish people to exercise their own rights and their own religion. This is all documented, you might say, uh, in the book of Daniel, which was written around the second century B.C., but because of being concerned, the writers being concerned uh, about confiscation and execution and so forth, they put the storyline and the plot all the way back into the 6th century, into the period of Deuteronomy. But you have a loosely disguised uh, representation of names from the 6th century, but really mean uh, the Greek kings from the 2nd century. It is the beginning of apocalyptic language and apocalyptic literature. All right, 2nd century B.C., so you have, again, the struggle of the Jewish people, as I said, to exercise their religious rights and freedoms uh, because of the Greek forcing, uh, the Greek empire's forcing of the Hellenization. Now, some of the people uh, took to Hellenizing or Hellenization, which was uh, an elevation of culture, education, commerce, um, you had uh, a number of of people migrating out of Israel to various Greek territories and settlements elsewhere. They then adopted the Greek language and so forth, and that's how uh, we got to the Septuagint version of the Old Testament. There were so many uh, faithful Jewish people outside of Israel now that they wanted the Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek, their own language. Greek became the language of the elite and the cultured and the educated, etc. Regardless of where you were, even in Rome, Greek was the language of culture. All right. Uh, it was forced upon the Israelite people who now were beginning to be called Jews. And why? It wasn't until the beginning of the 5th century B.C. when the remnant of people came back from Babylon to Judah the territory that I showed you in the map a little while ago. They were referred to as Judites because they were going back to, or they were now living in the land of Judah. All right? That didn't last very long. They were called Judahites for a short period of time, and eventually... That was changed to Jew. Okay. So the word Jew does not come from Jerusalem. 
the city of Jerusalem. It comes from the territory of Judah. And it, it was sort of a nickname in the beginning and took hold. But that's 5th century B.C. Alright? All prior to that, you won't find the word Jew in any of the Old Testament books prior to the 5th century. Another phenomenon developed during this time period. As I said, they realized now they were under the domination of the Greeks and later the Romans. And they probably would never be sovereign nation again as they were prior to or during the time of David and Solomon. Okay, So, over a period of time, the whole concept of a new promised land developed. Well, you know, it didn't start out with any definition or clear understanding. But over a period of a hundred years or so, the whole idea of this new promised land coincided with some of the earlier scriptures of where God was. And it came down to the fact that mankind was destined to return to God at some point in time. So, the new promised land, rather than being physical land, was heaven. Now, heaven was not a new concept, but it was never thought about until this time period of mankind going back to heaven to be with the Father. That was strictly, heaven was strictly where the God or gods were. All right? And that came from the fact, if you go all the way back to the time of Moses, when God appeared to Moses, it was always at the top of a mountain with, you know, thunder and lightning and peals of trumpets and so forth and so on. So that is why when, even today, when people think of heaven, they sort of look up there. Well, you got to remember that the people on the other side of the earth are looking down there, right? But to them, it's up. All right. But heaven is not a physical place. Heaven is a state of being. And that is being with God in the person of God, in the presence of God. Okay. Well then, that took hold because even at the time of Christ, people, you know, at least half of the people accepted the fact that there was a heaven after death. But how they got there, you know, was never quite clear. And the other half of the Jewish people didn't believe that at all. And even today, a good percentage, I don't know whether it's half or what it is, I don't think it's half, <clears throat> but the Hasidic Jews and the Ashkenazis and a few other uh, sects, the ones that wear the the men that wear the curled hairs and the black uh, top hats and that kind of thing, uh, those are Hasidic Jews who do not believe in life after death. No, 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 no. No, Sadducees were the political group at the time of Christ. They didn't believe either. That's right. No. And i got to pull my old joke. Okay. The Pharisees the Pharisees were the ones that believed in 
heaven. The Sadducees, now these are political groups back at the time of Christ. The Sadducees are another political group that did not believe in heaven. And that is why they are sad, you see. Well, that, that, you're right. If, and, and the lady said, if the, the Hasidic Jews do not believe in an afterlife, why bothering following the law? But they're the ones who are closest to studying the law. In fact, they are subsidized in Israel even today. And they do not work while they are actively pursuing their studies. They are subsidized by the government. And yet, as you pointed out, why? Because if there is no life after death, what's the purpose? I can't answer that because there is no answer. You see, there really is no answer. But many, and I would say a majority of the Jewish people now believe, as they did at the time of Christ, that there is a life after death. That is heaven or shale, which is comparable to our hell or damnation. Now, the other point is, who's going to lead these people into this new promised land? Okay? They looked upon David, King David, as the one who united all of the little tribal kingdoms that existed prior to David's reign. Who is going to lead them into this new promised land like Moses did? And that is how the whole term of Messiah developed. Not until roughly 200 years before Christ. But you see how the Holy Spirit is working through these people? It is very obvious when you study and understand and see the whole movement of God through his people and how events come about to further this plan of salvation, which of course culminates in Christ Jesus. All right. But the whole concept of Messiah, somebody who was going to lead them into heaven, they weren't quite sure exactly how uh, this was all going to come about. But eventually, this is what they came down to. And of course, when Christ comes on the scene, that's the answer. And you would think the Hasidic Jews and the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have recognized all of this, but they were so ingrained in studying the words of the law that they never got the message. And that's what I don't want you people to end up doing. Don't get so caught up in the words of Scripture that you overlook the message. Because, as we often say, the Word of God or the Scriptures are, you know, God Himself. Well, you got to qualify that. The Scriptures are the Word of God only when they are understood, accepted, and lived by the people. The scriptures are not the words of God. Those are human words describing what they were, in, they were inspired to write. 
but they had to write them in their own language at their own time and culture. So you got to be very careful when you read scripture. There are so many words, individual words, that have an entirely different meaning than we think of those same words. When you go and bless yourself in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, what do you really mean? God the Father has no name, does he? God the Father has no name. But in Scripture, name has a greater meaning than just what a person is called. Particularly the further back you go. The word name and the use of an individual's name implies the whole person. Or, as I often say, the persona of an individual. So that when you say, bless me in the name, in the person of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That's what you're getting at. And when we get into briefly the descriptions of the Ten Commandments, the commandment that says, Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord in vain. If you translate that and use this word persona, it gives an entirely different meaning. So many people think that that commandment means thou shalt not uh, swear. And yeah, swearing is wrong, uh, but that's only a minor part of that commandment. What it says is, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord, thou shalt not take the person of the Lord in vain. An entirely different meaning, far broader. And that is what we got to be very careful when we study scripture, is that we don't interpret the scriptures using today's understanding of those same words. You ever think about that? And there's a lot of those words. Uh, in Psalm 27, it's about three quarters of the way down, there's a phrase that says, seek his face. Well, again, God the Father has no face. Pure spirit, right? What does that psalm mean? And you all have heard, one thing I, one thing I wish for is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, so on and so forth. A very beautiful psalm that you hear quite often used in church uh, as a responsorial psalm. <clears throat> but in this psalm, what it's saying here is face is a euphemistic way of requesting the presence of God. Okay. So face is presence. Not T-S, but C-S. Okay. You have a, a, a number of others. Hand. Power. Arm. Strength. And I could go on and on and on, which we don't have time for tonight. So, 
be careful. When you are reading scripture, you got to be sure that if you run against something that you think in today's understanding of those same words, that doesn't make sense. Always try to substitute some other word because it might help you out. Okay. Now, I want to get back to the end of the fourth period. The end of the fourth period is what? It begins, the end begins with the crucifixion of Christ. Yes, the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. But the real end of the crucifixion happens in the year 70 AD. 70 AD is the end not only of the fourth period, for certain, it is also the end of the first covenant. Because all of these 2,000 years and all of this that we've been talking about last week and this week are the furtherance of God's plan of salvation, which culminates in the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And all of these people who should have known and understood what God's plan was all about should have understood the scriptures because that's what they were there for, should have understood the prophets because that's what they were there for, didn't. Because they were selfish and they were trying to protect their own jobs, something like the politicians of today. Excuse me. That's three? Okay. But that was a good one. Okay. All right. What happens here is the fourth period of Old Testament history for the Jewish people ends in disaster with the destruction of the temple, which was the center of all of their beliefs. What they believed at that time was the temple was where God lived. And they never gave credit to the fact that God can't be housed or boxed in a temple. That God lives within mankind as well and is omnipresent and, uh, you know, knows all, sees all, and so forth. Um, but it was their symbol for their use and God accepted that up to a point. All right. But when they rejected his, his own son, who he sent for their salvation, when they refused to believe even after the resurrection, he gave them 40 days to at least reconsider. And when they refused, huh? I'm sorry, 40 years. Yes. Thank you. Uh, he gave them 40 years, you know, the biblical 40 years, to reconsider and try to understand, particularly because it was that same 40 years during which all of the four Gospels, well, at least three of them were written, part of the fourth probably, uh, much of and all of Paul's writings, so if they didn't understand by that time, they never were going to. And so God withdraws the covenant. And that is shown by the destruction 
of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans. It just so happens that the Jewish people manipulated the Romans into crucifying Christ. It was interesting how the Romans now became the ones who destroys their temple. A sign of God's withdrawal of the covenant. So you can see the importance of the word covenant. Now, what was the substitute? What was the next covenant? Turn to the last, your last week's handout. To the second last page. All of the books of the Old Testament, 46 books, in some way point to the event of Jesus Christ. Not always in detail, not always specifically. The word Jesus is never used in any place of the Old Testament. The word Messiah is. The word that Messiah, the words that Messiah means in English, the anointed one, is in the Old Testament, but, but the word Jesus is not. Okay? But all of the books of the Old Testament point in some way, maybe briefly, uh, Mary, maybe very faintly, but in some way, they all point to the event of Jesus Christ. The New Testament takes the description of the life, death, and teachings of Christ, life, death, and resurrection, and the teachings of Christ, and they point to the new and eternal covenant, which is eternal life or salvation. All right? And the point that we have to remember is, if we don't take the teachings of Christ seriously, then the covenant will be withdrawn from us on an individual basis. Because the covenant is not housed in the Vatican or the church over here or any one place. The covenant is within you. The covenant is God himself reigning in your heart and soul when you accept Christ as your Lord. Now, that might sound Protestant, but exactly that is, that's exactly what it is. It's not Protestant, but this, the, the Protestants got it right, by the way, before we did. Um, that is really the essence of Christ's whole message. I will give you eternal life if you love me and love your neighbor and live according to my teachings. I will give you eternal life. 
Eternal life means presence of God and no suffering, no wants, no needs, everything will be provided for. What more could you ask? Susan? No, no. They they did have them. Yes, Susan's question was, when the people returned from from Babylon, was the book of Deuteronomy the only one left? And the answer is no. They had the others. But you see, Deuteronomy, the word itself, is a almost like a summary or a con- condensation. Is that the word? condensing of all of the other books and a retelling in in a very uniform way. See, the difference between Deuteronomy and the other books is the other books are more or less stories uh, that relate to the history of Judaism. Deuteronomy is strictly the laws put into uh, the mouth of Moses, you might say. There's no dialogue There's no storytelling in Deuteronomy. It is pretty much a description of the law, which most of which could be found in bits and pieces in the other four books. Yes, pretty much so. They were revised several times uh, afterwards. Yes, they were revised quite often uh, because they were histories that weren't fully accepted by, you know, what they call the redactors, the people who did the revising. Yeah. But Deuteronomy was pretty much intact, particularly chapters 4 through 29. Yeah. The chapters 1 through four, or 1 through 3 were sort of added later, again, as a beginning, in the same way the book of Genesis was added later. Book of Genesis wasn't written until the fifth century BC. Yeah. Yes. 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 Uh, Dick, did you have a question? You asked two questions in the reading assignments. Yes. And you didn't answer them. Good. <laughs> I don't want to always give you the answers. I asked you, did you see any problem with the logic in uh, Matthew's? Uh, Chapter verse one. I mean, chapter one, verse seventeen. Two thousand one is only three periods. Uh huh. All right. And the yes. Other is that that uh, the fourteen seems to be inconsistent with that. Um, some of them are counted in two Gospel of Matthew in your Bibles, and please bring your Bibles every every week, uh, not the great big kind that sits on your coffee table, the gathering dust. But uh, bring a Bible, okay? Now, if you go to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter one, verse seventeen. Verses one through sixteen are pretty much the genealogy of of Christ. Okay, Uh, but when it gets to 17, 
It says, thus the num- total number of generations from Abraham to David is 14 generations, from David to the Babylonian captivity, 14 generations, and from the Babylonian captivity to the Messiah or Christ, 14 generations. Well, you have two problems that scholars have been wrestling with for 2,000 years. Did Matthew really believe, mean David or was he talking about Moses? And if he was talking about Moses, then mm, with a stretch you could probably accept this. But if he's talking about David, as Dick pointed out, and, I mean if he's talking about Abraham, as Dick pointed out, regardless of how many years are in a generation, and let's take the the number 40, okay? So, you, <clears throat> 14 generations or 560 years. Well, you know, I've said that these time periods are loosely 500 years apart. So that would be okay. But for the first two, that would not work, would it? Because we're talking about a thousand years between Abraham and uh, David. Okay? So, there's either, there's two theories. Either Matthew meant Moses, because that's when Judaism really began, or he's got some other symbolic use of the word, of the number 14, which of course, as you know, is two times seven, which is one of the sacred numbers of the Jewish culture. So we don't know exactly what Matthew is saying. Uh, but in either case, it's not at least correct in today's way of looking at it. Okay. Yes. Father, we thank you for being with us and your Holy Spirit guiding us. And Jesus being here also. We thank you for the presence, your face, being here among us. Now we ask that we take part of you with us home. So that we can truly live the scriptures as you intend us to live them. Give us the strength and the courage to understand what it is you want from each of us so that we might follow you unreservedly and not end up like some of the poor misguided peoples of the past. So give us a hand in developing our own spiritual walk with you. And we thank you and we praise you for so many graces and blessings. In fact, we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.